You're listening to the Western Science Speaks podcast. Explaining why these selfless acts are actually advantageous is important. Evolution is a slow and unguided process. Well, I'm Canadian, and this is the school I go to, and this is how much I love my culture. Let me share this with you. Presented by Henry Standage. For many, the query into the existence of extraterrestrial life may be the most frustratingly unknowable question our world currently offers. We debate it with our friends, our parents, and basically anyone willing to indulge the question. But it's not often you get to speak with someone who is an expert on that exact topic. Dr. Jan Kami from the Department of Astronomy and Physics is that expert. Today on the podcast, we're fortunate enough to discuss the likelihood of intelligent life being elsewhere in the universe, the origins of our own life here on Earth, and what communication with the aliens, if it ever happened, would entail. This is Are We Alone Out Here? Examining the recipe for intelligent life in the universe. Here we go. I think sometimes as humans, we see ourselves as very separate from the rest of life on Earth. Is there any grounds for doing so when comparing life, say, genetically? That's an excellent question. Um, and so if we think about it, um, um, we are, of course, all genetically very much related. So if you take um, any two people on Earth, you find that uh, genes match, say, 995 to 100%. Um, but we also have about 18% or so in common with, with um, life forms we wouldn't immediately expect to be related to, things like yeasts and that sort of stuff. Um, and so humans have about 24,000 genes and 355 of those we share with all life on Earth, um, whether that's that's microbes or that's, that's plants or animals. Um, we share those 355 genes. Minimum. Yes, right. That's true. Yes, um, and so um, what what biologists have done is is kind of group this. Like like if you take those species with which we're most closely related in terms of like genetic makeup, uh, chimpanzees, for instance, uh, those are closely related to us. Um, you can make something that is called a, a phylogenetic tree of life, um, where one of the end branches that's where we humans and other animals actually are. Um, and as you go further away towards the root of that tree, um, um, you get to more primitive life. Um, um, and so all the other life kind of kind of is the offspring uh, of that primitive life. And so we think that, that that there is this concept of this last universal common ancestor, which is um, a life form that had those 355 genes. And so from that life form, all current life on Earth um, right. evolved off. Expanded from that base. That's right. Um, um, and so, yeah, Luca, we call him, the last latest universal common ancestor. That's not necessarily the first life form on Earth, but that's the, the latest one from which then all life um, um, further um, developed. And so we kind of work out timelines of, of, of you know, all those relations and, and, and time for ch genetic, genetic change, how far back would that latest um, universal common ancestor have lived, you find it's about, say, three and a half to 3.8 billion years ago. 
um, which coincidentally is about about the age of the oldest fossils um, we can find. Um, and so, so interesting as well is that so we have genes and gene, gene expression, so we can now figure out those 355 genes that all life has in common. What do those actually do? Um, and so I figured out that in those 355 genes, there's genes that um, in principle allow you to metabolize uh, molecular hydrogen. Um, there's genes for like thermophilic uh, behavior. So it, it means that that life form could um, uh, survive well in, in warm places. And so, you know, from that sort of properties, this this idea is born that life started in, in some warm water environment where that's like these these warm little ponds that Darwin uh, described, things like like hot pools, uh, hot springs like you find them in Yellowstone, or it's more like deep sea um, uh, volcanic vents, we call them black smokers, um, that's still up for debate, but, but those environments kind of represent uh, environments where it is warm um, uh, and where that sort of, of life form probably could survive very well. Do you believe that Luca uh, is from the water originally? Um, yeah, we think that's most likely. Yeah, because because there's this idea that that um, that before you get into say biological um, um, species, there's kind of a chemistry leading up to that biology, um, and for a lot of chemistry, you kind of need a solvent to to kind of get things to work. And so, yes, we think that certainly um, um, it's a lot a lot easier to kind of get towards um, living things in water than it is on dry land. Right. And I mean, we're talking about a planet that's four and a half billion years old, uh, and we've only been around in our current form for a couple thousand years. How long did it take for primitive life to arise on Earth? Yeah, so that's actually a very surprising, surprising topic. And, and the truth is that we're not entirely sure of this yet. Um, so the oldest fossils that we found are about 3.5 to 3.8 billion years old. Uh, but those do not necessarily represent the first life. So life may have existed earlier. Uh, and there's a piece of controversial evidence um, um, in zircon uh, crystals, and those we know are actually much older. Um, and there's some evidence for carbon um, that was produced by, by some biological uh, process. Um, it's it's not the most rock-solid evidence. That's why there's some, some debate about it. But if that would be true, um, um, the whole early history of the Earth is kind of interesting. You, you, you form the Earth and within a few hundred million years, you actually have oceans on the Earth. And, and almost immediately after that, you would have life. Um, and if that's true, at that time, we had lots of impacts from um, asteroids um, and comets that hit the Earth. And some of those impacts were like, like extremely energetic, um, um, energetic enough to actually make the entire oceans boil off. Right. Um, and so we don't think that that primitive life would have been able to survive that, or maybe they were able to survive it. But if these events happened um, and they did not survive, then life reformed again fairly quick, quickly as well. And so there's this, this idea that, you know, if life happens, happens very quickly on Earth, uh, or it happens even multiple times, it arises multiple times within, within say, a few hundred million years, which astronomically speaking is like the blink of an eye, right? Uh, then it, it suggests that the whole process that brings us to living things may not be that difficult. Uh, and, and that is very different if you look at intelligent life. It takes way longer to develop intelligent life, um, where there's, of course, questions about like how do you define intelligent life to, to begin with. 
But if we would see ourselves as an intelligent species, then that takes four and a half billion years. Um, and so arguably it's it's a lot harder to make an intelligent being than it is to make um, like a single celled um, organism. Why is it that intelligent life took so much longer to develop than just primitive? Well, that's a good question, and and I wish we had the answer. Um, um, but what is certainly part of that is um, um, that conditions were probably not right. Um, but that's all speculation because we don't really know whether you need conditions to make intelligent life, whether intelligent life is something that would happen. Um, one of the arguments that you often hear is that, you know, if there wouldn't have been this asteroid that slammed into the Earth 65 million years ago, chances are the dinosaurs would actually still be roaming around here. Um, and so so we don't know whether that's really true. What if the dinosaurs would have would have what if that impact would not have happened to the dinosaurs still roam here? Would uh, mammals have developed? Would would intelligent mammals have developed? It's kind of hard to say. We 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 only have one uh, sample size of one, and that's that's where we are right now. So we don't have the answer to that question. What are the two common ideas regarding the development of intelligent life? Right. So actually, f- for both life and intelligent life, it's 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 actually very similar. And so so. The big problem, I mean, the, the honest answer is we, we really don't know. Uh, we don't know because we only have a sample size of one for both life and for, for intelligent life, in a sense. Um, but here's the whole idea. So so if if you look at early life, well, that happened quickly. So, so maybe that means it, it wasn't all that difficult. Maybe it didn't ask for special conditions. Um, and if that's the case, then, then you know, life is is gonna be plentiful in the universe there's gonna be life everywhere but if you now look at intelligent life that took way longer to develop um, and it's not that there were like no evolutions to other life forms right we've we've had like the, the Cambrian explosion and that sort of thing so there's been lots and lots of life forms in those four and four and a half billion years it just took very long until one of those ended up being being intelligent so that then suggests that there's that there's steps in this process which which either are more complicated or less likely, and so then it would be uh, more difficult to make intelligent life. And if that's true, which again we don't really know, but if that's true, that would then actually mean that the probability for finding intelligent life elsewhere in the universe um, uh, would be a lot smaller. Um, and so so either life is exceptional because you need special conditions to create life, or intelligent life is special you kind of need exceptional conditions to create intelligent life or it's actually unavoidable um, um, it's just a matter of getting the right conditions uh, inevitable yeah and so the universe is so big if it's just a matter of getting the right conditions if 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 they happened once on earth the universe is so big that there's bound to be places where those conditions happened again or happened at the same time or before even so right i think a characterization we make a lot is that if there's primitive life out there they'll want to annihilate us but if they're intelligent then they'll be prenaturally disposed to you know wanting to collaborate with us but we never think about what if they just want to annihilate us and they're super intelligent uh, well so 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 the way i think or maybe i've seen too many movies that's option c <laughs> yeah well i i i'm i'm not so sure about about either of those um um and it depends a little bit already on how you define primitive life, um, and and so you know def- defining life and defining intelligence is actually surprisingly difficult, mm. um, and that's the first that's the first part that we have problems with. Now, I think, but of course, no evidence for it. I think that life itself will actually be widespread and abundant in in the universe because because I think this is 
chemistry leading to biology and so chemistry is is just like cooking right it's it's if you follow a recipe you put in the same ingredient you follow the same processes the same end result is going to come out um, um you know if if you put a pizza in the oven and and you wait what's going to come out is not a stuffed turkey it's it's going to be a pizza that's going to come out um, and it's the same for for these steps that lead from chemistry to to biology if, if all that is essentially just just some process that just depends on the conditions then that life is going to be everywhere but that's primitive life so that's like single cell species like microbes and and so now you can wonder like are those going to be out to to kill us well not necessarily but of course they will um, have developed to adapt to to their environment and maybe that has implications for our health if we would mm-hmm. come in contact contact with them. So in this analogy, the kitchen is a planet or an atmosphere similar to Earth's. So you think rather than trying to find intelligent life that developed in different circumstances, we're probably trying to find a planet that's the most comparable to ours. Well, yeah, and 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 perhaps somewhat surprisingly, those are not rare planets. Um, and, and so we often hear like, oh, but, you know, you guys, you only think about carbon based life forms and you only think about like like planets with water. And, and of course, that's not really true. We, we do consider our things as well. Um, but carbon is 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 abundant in the universe. And it's it's an element that easily makes makes these very complex and, and diverse species. Um, so it's an ideal element to use for like a survival of the fittest sort of sort of chemistry already um, water we find everywhere in the universe um, so finding a planet with water on it is is probably not going to be unlikely there's going to be lots of planets that have that have water on their surfaces and so with with what we know about planets around other stars the numbers right now is that that we estimate that there's you know give or take a few billion there's about 40 billion Earth-like planets, so planets that are rocky planets, um, maybe a bit smaller, maybe a bit larger than the Earth, but rocky planets that are in what we call the habitable zone around their star, which is the region where where the temperature is right to have liquid water on on the surface. So not too hot, too hot that it's all steam, not too cold that it's all ice, but you can have liquid water on the surface. And given that we see water in every nook and corner of the universe, chances are that that a good fraction of them actually will have water on them. So it's actually not a stretch to kind of kind of focus on those first because we think that those will be plentiful um, um, and if the same processes happen there that happened on the earth then it's not unlikely that that life originated there too. How generous are we with the term earth-like when we're looking way out and trying to find planets similar to ours? Because I, th- I think a lot of people don't really know what Earth-like means when we say that. So, yeah. So right now we can actually be very, um, um, very approximate, I should say. So right now when you hear astronomers say Earth-like planets, essentially what they mean is, is planets made, up, made of, of rock and, and, and metals. Very different from planets like Jupiter and Saturn, which are primarily made of gas. Uh, so, so when we say Earth-like planets, we mean rocky planets that have a solid surface uh, that are about the size of the earth 
maybe a bit smaller, maybe a bit bigger, up to maybe twice the size of the Earth or something, but but not bigger than that. That's what we kind of now call Earth-like Earth-like planets. And they can look very different than the Earth because if they're close to their star, they could be like super hot. Yeah. If far away, they could they could be completely frozen. Um, but by by now saying look like you know let's let's make sure they are in this habitable zone. That makes them a bit more Earth-like, again, in terms of, of um, uh, the temperature that we expect. Whether they're re- really going to look like the Earth in terms of like having oceans and having an atmosphere, that we don't know yet. So so future space, mis- space missions will hopefully um, um, tell us that. But we're not quite, quite there yet. Okay. Uh, astronomers sometimes talk about cosmic origins. What does that mean? Right. That that essentially means that we kind of all um, that our roots are in space, um, and it's kind of a few kind of slightly different meanings. Kind of kind of in the very general um, sense, um, all the what we call heavy elements in your body. So everything which is not hydrogen, which is not helium, um, was made in stars. Um, and and it's kind of interesting to to think about. It's so very inspiring. So carbon is made in, in on the inside in, in, of stars. So what makes stars shine is is this process of nuclear fusion that will make heavy elements like carbon. Those are are brought to the surface, and then at the end of their life, either through supernova explosion or or a, a slightly more gentle way, they actually kind of kind of expel all those elements back into space, where they're now incorporated in the next generation of stars. And so the carbon atoms in your your left finger and your right finger may actually have originated from different stars, but they come from stars. That carbon was made on the inside of stars. And that holds for every element in your atom, in in your body, sorry, which is not um, hydrogen or, or helium. But I think there's like a second layer to to that term or, or cosmic origins, which, which relates to the formation or, or the origins of life. Um, it turns out that there's certain complex um, um, chemicals, molecules that are easier to make in space sometimes than they are to make on on the early Earth. Um, and so we see, for instance, if you pick up some carbonaceous uh, meteorites, you can bring them to the lab and analyze them for content, and you see that that in some of these carbonaceous uh, meteorites, you find 70 different kinds of amino acids. And now we need amino acids in our in our bodies to function. Um, those meteorites contain all the amino acids that life uses on Earth. Life on Earth uses only 20 of those, and so all 20 types of all 20 amino acids we find in in meteorites. And so today. You know, there's about a thousand to ten thousand tons of space rocks that fall onto the Earth, but four billion years ago, it was like many times more than that. And so you bring in a lot of that organic material, which already is um, has a level of complexity that you don't have to build. So if you bring those in, you don't have to build these amino acids on the early Earth. Mm. You have them available, and so that might actually kickstart um, um, life on Earth. And so that's the second meaning of of what these cosmic origins are. We we think that that stuff made in space kind of helped kickstart life on Earth. I think that's such an interesting point because for one, it gives me a better appreciation of what life means, the fact that these meteorites can carry something as essential as amino acids. And two, it makes me think about Earth as a blank canvas when it started, something that the ingredients had to come to it and then it began to sprout. Right. There's there's also um, um, there's been some suggestions about uh, you know something called panspermia, where essentially the whole idea is you know life itself was brought in from space. So you have like bacteria or, or, or microbes that were brought in 
um, in meteorites uh, to the Earth. Um, we essentially have zero evidence for that. Um, so we do know that that some organisms are, are you know, they can survive uh, conditions, space-like conditions, but we have not found any life um, um, or any life forms in meteorites. So it's it's, I think at this point, uh, speculation. I it's it's maybe not impossible, but essentially there is no evidence for that yet. Mm. Uh, okay, I'll get to the big question then. How likely do you think it is that there is life on other planets, and how can we even go about assessing that? Yeah, so that's a question that 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 people have been struggling with for for a while, and so, unfortunately, in spite of of many years of research, the answer is still well, we don't really know. So the scientifically honest answer is we don't know, and there's no clear way to actually know at this point. Um, but you know, we can we can make um, some assessments and 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 maybe some guesses, um, and so. If the origins of life is is essentially based on on chemistry, then we think the the consequence of that must be that life must be primitive life at least must be widespread and abundant because we see that the same ingredients are present throughout the entire galaxy, well throughout the entire universe. We see evidence for for complex um, carbon based molecules out to a redshift of six, so when the universe was like really really young. So we know that those complex carbonaceous species already formed pretty early on in, in the universe. So those ingredients are everywhere. Um, the water we see everywhere, the planets we see everywhere. So we think the conditions um, and the ingredients are there. So then that primitive life should should exist um, on, on a lot of other planets as well. How can we actually guess? Well, um, so there's, there's a famous equation called the Drake equation. Yeah, I like this one. Yeah, so for once, it's cool. it's it's not a physics equation. It's um, the description that I kind of like best is that it's an equation um, to kind of kind of make an inventory of our ignorance in in the whole process. And it's essentially an equation that if you fill in all the terms, it will give you the number of technologically advanced civilization in uh, the galaxy or in the universe that we could be communicating with right now. And there's a large number of terms um, um, in that equation. It starts with the number of stars that our galaxy forms per year, and then that's the fraction of stars that have planets. There's a term in there, the number of planets per star. Then it's a factor which is the fraction of planets where life develops. Then the fraction of life-bearing planets that develop intelligent life. Then the fraction of intelligent civilizations that develop communication. And then there's the lifetime of, of the civilization. And so the nice thing about the equation is that we actually don't know the terms very well. Um, so now that we that we have kind of counted um, um, like how many stars have planets, we now know that pretty much every star has has a planetary system. Um, and so we know that the product of the first few terms now is about is about ten. So that's the only thing that we know. But now the fraction of planets where life develops, like meh. We don't know. We have a sample size of one. So, 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 <laughs> is that a fraction which is close to zero percent, or a fraction which is close to a hundred percent, or somewhere in between? We don't really know. And so, what people do is 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 they make some estimate based based on on their own gut feeling sometimes. So, it's there's very little science to guide you on what that number should be. Um, for any of those. And so depending on what numbers you put in and, and maybe whether you're an optimist or a pessimist, you can actually get get a, a very low number, um, a, a number of civilizations far less than one. 
which then would imply that we're the only technologically advanced civilization in the Milky Way galaxy. Or you can also, by, by putting in larger numbers, you can get like thousands or tens of thousands of, of civilizations in the galaxy as well. And uh, so we don't we don't know at this point um, what some of these factors are, um, and and the only way to know some of them is to actually go and search for civilizations that we could actually communicate with. So so listen for their signals and and try to find those. Um, that's going to be the only way that we're actually ever going to figure out some of these some of these terms. And so people think that we have been doing this for a very long time and like, gosh, you know, haven't we kind of listened to all planets in the Milky Way galaxy yet? And the answer is no, we're very far away from from being at that point. And so in fact, right now, if you kind of kind of look at at the number of stars or planets where we have actually kind of listened in for signals, it's equivalent to kind of taking a glass of, of water, going to the ocean, scooping up um, um, a mm. glass of ocean water, and then, then evaluating, is there any fish in the glass? No. Well, therefore, there's no fish in the oceans. That would be wrong, but that's kind of what we have now. We've kind of kind of surveyed a very small fraction of, of planets in our Milky Way galaxy. We have not found any evidence for, for a civilization, but that does not mean that there is nothing out there. And so the only way to get like some confidence in, in what those numbers are is to kind of survey a much larger volume of stars in our Milky Way galaxy and, and do that exercise. Mm. And so that's what we're doing right now. Um, um, there's actually various organizations that, that are that are doing that. And so with the current rate of, of measuring um, um, either within say two decades or so, we should have found some signs of intelligent life that's communicating. Or if we haven't found anything, then then you know we will have looked at at millions of stars, and if in like ten million stars that you've surveyed, you find zero evidence for technological civilization, it tells you something about about what the product of these terms uh, together is, and then that can help you to kind of gauge um, perhaps better what should be the number of civilizations in the Milky Way galaxy. What what I like so much about the Drake equation is that you can measure your own personal optimism about how likely these essential factors to life are and then get a basic sense of, you know, how you personally feel and what the percentage is that if you're correct, that there'll be life out there. Yeah, it's it's one of those funny equations that's that's being used uh, by 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 people that want to use it as proof that life must be abundant, but it also used as proof by people who think yeah. that no, life is not going to be <laughs> abundant. And that's because of those factors are unknown, so you can put in whatever whatever you believe, right? So Yeah. And uh Yeah. I guess uh I know you explained that really well. I like the analogy of the glass of water in the ocean. I will say if if we did see a signal, would you be willing to go out there? Well, so that's a, a that's a totally different question, right? <laughs> so 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 if if life is out there, um um could we actually conceivably travel there or could they travel here? Um and so, so one of the reasons I think that that we haven't seen much evidence for for extraterrestrials is that interstellar travel is going to be very, very mm. difficult. And and life forms like ours, I mean, we're not made to survive very long in in those conditions in space. Um, and so, with our current technology, traveling to the nearest star would take us fifty thousand years. I mean, who's gonna who's gonna do that? And and how could you how could you actually ensure that even as a civilization on that sort of of trips you could actually survive for for that long, 
Um, so I think that's not that's not trivial. Um, and sure, with technology, we will probably make improvements to to um, how fast we can travel. But then there's all sorts of other problems. There there is a maximum speed limit in the universe, and that's the speed of light. We're never going to reach that. There's there's um, energy needs um, to reach that sort of speeds, which are which which I mean we're never going to uh, meet. But also, once you start going at very high high velocities, even small dust grains will hit you at such a high velocity that they can actually do serious damage. And so, uh, we know that that interstellar space is full of of dust grains. There might actually be kind of kind of rocks and boulders out there. So, so how can you avoid those if you're traveling at at a very high speed, uh, for instance? So. I, I think interstellar travel is is always going to be difficult. And so the, the only way to kind of get around that is to make sure that you're not um, um, bound to kind of this, this biological shell that we have. And so one kind of interesting... Uh, this is heading towards MIT right now, my faculty. <laughs> well, so... One of the interesting things that people have been thinking about is like, like what if you could upload your conscience to to a machine so it's yeah. a bit like artificial intelligence in a, in a way and of course if 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 you can can put your um, consciousness into a machine that can actually self repair then you're not bound to this these problems that we biological beings have and so in that case if a civilizations get to that point where they can can have essentially self-replicating and self-repairing, I should say, robots. Then, then sure, you put them on on a spaceship. They don't care about fifty thousand years. I can't remember the term, and it's bugging me. So I'm just going to let it go. But yeah, we <laughs> study this all the time in my classes. Um, but yeah, it's a pretty cool topic. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely controversial, but uh, yeah. The uh, the aliens might be a little freaked out by it when we come. It kind of what you're saying though. It kind of sounds like we're destined to just be pen pals with them. Well, yeah. Um, un- unless we find a solution to to our our you know biological constraints, um, and and you know, but then you can start talking about artificial intelligence, and then there's there's all sorts of other dangers involved in artificial intelligence. So, so you know. If if you build um, artificial intelligence, why would they care about going out and exploring? Um, so yeah, I mean, there's a whole there's a whole set of other discussion points that that uh, you know that sort of questions opens up. That wraps up this episode of Western Science Speaks. You can catch our other episodes on SoundCloud, Spotify, and Podbean. Thanks to Radio Western for having us. You can catch our show bi-weekly on Thursdays at 11.30. Until next time, I'm Henry Standage signing out. Thanks for listening.